0: Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC. And also recording from Bowser, BC, in the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. This is our gratitude season, where we're showcasing and celebrating, and talking with and about our team members. Gary Brewer, (laughs) welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jen. You're welcome. It's so good to have you here. The last time I saw you was at our Christmas party and that was a great time. It was awesome. We're still talking about it.
1: (laughs) It was so much fun.
0: It was so much fun. So you've joined us here and I wonder if you could bring folks up to speed on your origin story as an archaeologist, which kind of ties into what we're talking about today, because we're going to go for the 40,000 meter elevation view mm-hmm. of how archaeology and heritage is kind of managed across the country uh, and talk about kind of the challenges with that. But you have a unique perspective on that because you worked in different areas across the country and in different different delivery of those methods across the country from a regulatory sense, from a practitioner sense. We should focus in on like your career origin story My to give that scope.
1: Story. Okay. My career origin story is that I've always been interested in archaeology, lost treasures, hidden cities, uh lost all that treasures. kind of stuff. When I Uh, When I was a kid, those were the kind of books I read. Treasure Island and Caveman and and all that kind of stuff. When I got to university, I I mean, uh, there was never any question I was going to university. Um, But my dad's theory was that I was going to be an engineer. So that's where I started. Um, And I spent one year slaving away in that. And uh, the only course that I really enjoyed that year was uh, an anthropology course. Taught uh, by a guy named Herman Conrad who worked in uh, Central America and Herman's idea of history being actually married to a Mayan woman um, was the beginning of writing. Mm. And so in Central America, the beginning of writing is like 2000 BC. Uh, so we spent about probably 80% of the course talking about the Mayan lowlands and uh, Aztec um central american groups south into you know costa rica and that and then uh and then you know about 20 percent of the course was oh yeah this is what happened after the spanish arrived in mexico that course uh, was awesome and obviously the, the one i enjoyed the most and so i took a summer and uh, kind of tried to figure out where i was headed because i wasn't enjoying engineering very
0: much and uh much to your your dad's dismay yeah yeah
1: um, but, you know, my dad was a reasonable guy. He was an accountant. And so when I, uh, when I landed on uh, anthropology and archaeology, um, he said, can you make money at that?
0: You said, no one has yet, but I'm going to be the first.
1: Well, I said, I said, you know, I said, well, you know, one day, you know, get a PhD and teach at a university. And that was kind of my, my career path at the time. And he said, well, that sounded great so uh, I wandered up to the University of Calgary and uh, at that time their anthropology and archaeology department were split separately and I went to the anthropology people, cultural anthropology mostly, um, although they did have some primatology folks there and uh, their student advisor said why, (laughs) that's all he said, and why would you want to do this? (laughs) I said well uh, I'm interested in this and this and this and he says yeah there's no jobs. (laughs) So then I wandered over to archaeology, and they said, "Hey, yeah, no, there's lots of jobs. There's consulting. There's teaching. There's you know research. There's all these things." Um, and uh, so I signed up for archaeology, and, and the rest, uh, as they say, is history. But before I graduated, I had already worked several consulting jobs um, in the summers. Got my first taste of being dropped off by helicopters in the middle of nowhere, and. Living in uh, tents and living in a motel, considered you know, just, it felt really plush mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point even. Also working with First Nations. One of my first jobs, we were working with Pagan First Nation in southern Alberta.
0: You've traversed across mm-hmm. the continent yeah. and back again. And then so you, you've been working in CRM. And But we also, like when I met you, you were working at the archaeology branch, right? which is our provincial... Regulator here in BC, yeah. so Calgary, South Carolina, Ontario, yeah. mm-hmm. Southern Alberta, yeah. Saskatchewan. Yes. And BC. Yes. And a scope that ranged from CRM, academic to regulation as well. Yes. So with that being said, you have this, I would say rare perspective of this topic, which is looking at consistency or lack of consistency. I'm not sure mm-hmm. which way um, you see it of approach across Canada in terms of how heritage is managed. I, I don't know anyone else who could speak to that kind of with as much applied experience. So where where do you sit? Is it consistent? Is it, is it inconsistent? Why?
1: Oh, it's, it's inconsistent. Sometimes just in the, in the details, sometimes in the broader strokes, uh, pretty much everyone has a permitting system, but some jurisdictions like BC, we permit a project. Ontario, they permit an archaeologist. Right. When I worked in the States, I was, I was certified through Society of Professional Archaeologists, um, which meant that I could work on, bid on any projects that came up across the country and since most of the work was being done at the federal level that that made sense but also if i was certified to work as a soap archaeologist i could work at state level projects as well right you know here in canada it's province by province or, or territory by territory whether or not you're considered uh professional whether or not you're uh certified to hold permits to conduct certain types of projects. And I can see the value in that uh, to a certain extent, but I've worked on shell middens in uh, South Carolina and Louisiana and uh, in the West Coast. And shell middens are shell middens. Um, it's different types of shells. But uh, at the end of the day, they're basically the same function and the same kinds of issues in terms of, you know, artifact preservation and and uh, site management.
0: Do you think that, you know, a more consistent one-size-fits-all approach is, would be preferable?
1: Working in Alberta, uh, what, I, what I heard was that uh, BC is very, very colloquial in its approach. And it's kind of like you had to have worked here, trained here, or whatever oh, yeah. to, you know. And, and so I've been holding permits uh, in jurisdictions across North America but I couldn't hold a permit here.
0: Yeah, it's a real kicker.
1: I can hold a permit in Northeastern B.C., but uh, despite the fact that I could work in in Idaho, Alaska, and Washington State, I, I can't hold a permit on the West Coast of B.C. yet.
0: Right. Do you think in terms of the management of heritage legislation should be more consistent, or do you think the governance surrounding practitioners themselves should be more consistent?
1: There's an effort to try and bring up the quality and, and I get that. I mean, I, I spent seven years working with the inventory there in Victoria and the early years, they were not good. They were they were they were fairly wide range of quality in terms of reporting. When you're trying to manage projects and like you know X, Y, and Z about this site, but the site that's actually being affected, you know that someone saw it in nineteen sixty. And that's all, you know, Um, and and so, so, you know, there's, there's those kinds of things they're, they're trying to achieve a greater consistency in in the quality of of what's being done.
0: I can see from like an archeometric Mm -hmm. standpoint, like consistency is key. We want to be able to have regional approaches, you know, macro approaches where we can compare methods and findings in a way that's like apples to apples. Like we're all using the same language, We all have similar training and so and so. But I think for me, the challenge is Canada is not just geographically huge, but like culturally diverse and Mm -hmm. and not just with indigenous communities either. Right. I also mean in terms of our treaties like B.C., uh, in terms of how land has been federally and provincially managed is quite different than the rest of the country and so there's challenges i think in that element in terms of access to lands territories that are unseated versus territories i don't know that i would say officially seated but in some cases there was at least discussions about it
1: mm-hmm.
0: right and yeah. so i think that that's kind of interesting because here in bc we have examples Where, it you know, anything to do with heritage now, how it's being managed goes back to how the land was managed wherever long ago. I'm wondering if you could give some, um, you know, examples of where it might be useful to have more of a consistent approach.
1: I see it more as a a framework as opposed to Mm. a series of policy statements. Right. uh one of the things that I've run across uh several different places in my career was uh, the idea of a, a master plan for like a municipality or
0: like an OCP you know, or a region. Or- yeah
1: and I think it, it, if you're looking at especially where you've got sort of conflicting interests in terms of how different types of sites are managed a master plan approach might be something that's sort of a framework that could be used in an area like that, because everybody can, can sort of agree on certain types of sites being important, how they're actually managed. That's something that's going to be sort of unique to that area or that, that territory or, or, uh, you know, those groups that are involved, you know, you talked about treaty plans, right. And, uh, I've done a lot of work in the Northeast, um, and it's all treaty seven territory. But within Treaty 7, there are very opposing views on how, Mm -hmm. um, for instance, burials are managed. Even in a situation where you've got sort of what you would think of as what people might assume is sort of a cohesive thing because they're all in Treaty 7. Yeah, managing the resources in that territory are just as complex as anywhere else. The master plan idea would be to identify all the sites, also identify all the, the, the traditional use areas.
0: So, just to so be clear about this example, so the master plan would be federal. And so, it would, like, identify all site types is that what you mean? Or
1: no, it could operate on a provincial level. Mm. But I think for, for on the ground management and on the ground, I guess the politics of it, if you can identify within an area, a particular area, all the, the sites that are important to all of the, the groups involved, and then you can sort of work back from, okay. This site or this group of sites here is important to everybody. So maybe that's an area where we tell developers, thank you, but no thank you.
0: Oh, I see what you mean.
1: And maybe, you know, identify all the sites in, in a territory that, that you would absolutely, you know, go to the wall on. That local nations, local researchers, whoever, have, have a strong interest in. And then work back from that. Because then everybody kind of knows whether or not it's important to you, it's important to somebody. And rather than having development drive what we look at.
0: Flip the model.
1: Yeah. We only look at the sites that, that, that developers want to tear up. Yeah. Flip it.
0: Would it be fair to say then that that would be like creating heritage conservancies, like areas of special heritage interests or something like that, where all nations in that area agree that no way no how either this area or or you know use this area as an archetype for areas that we don't want to be touched for example and then that would just be like development would go around it as opposed to the current model which is here's the project footprint for a development and then we go and check it after the fact and see if it has heritage importance on the back end
1: yeah. Well, I think it would be two things, right? Like I say, first of all, we identified all the sites that we know are, are of interest, of significance, uh, of value, and those get marked, those get flagged. These are areas that as a developer, you probably don't want to go. One of the things that I did in Saskatchewan when I was there, got involved in, uh, like I said, I started doing the inventory stuff and I was you know sort of on the, the beginnings of using GIS uh for managing inventory and so one of the things that we developed there um, which was easy to do because everything there is on a grid everything is on little squares of townships and range we developed a, a map for the southern half of the province um online so the developers could just look at the map and say oh okay if we're in this here if we're in a green square we need to call the archaeology branch hmm. if we're in a red square or a square with an x we need to the- get
0: out of the red square." <laughs>
1: red yeah, or whatever you know there are certain areas you didn't want to go there are certain areas you needed to ask about and there are certain areas where yeah please just send us a note but we don't need to review this hmm. and and that system is still functioning today
0: how much confidence do they have in those green areas that they have been thoroughly investigated and that nothing is going yeah. to show up is there an element of like monitoring or a chance fine protocol?
1: there is a chance fine. Um, But the impetus behind it was they sell out oil and gas rights in Saskatchewan. I don't know if they do the same thing here, but in Saskatchewan, they'll sell, sell the oil and gas rights to a particular piece of land, a quarter of a quarter, separate for each geological formation that they'd be drilling. So if there's eight different geological formations that you could possibly be drilling for. Hmm. You at, at the branch level, you'd be reviewing that same property over and over and over again every time they sell it, right? Every time the government sells it. And if a lease doesn't get used, or if uh, you know, then it goes back into the mix again. And so you spend so much time just re-reviewing the same property. And you know, somebody had already been out there and looked at it. There's no sites or there's a scatter, but it's in a cultivated field there's no point in sending people over and over and over again to that same property. And so that was the idea behind developing that maps. Like, okay, we've reviewed this quarter section 19 times over the past five years. And somebody went out and surveyed it and didn't find anything. We got pictures. The terrain is featureless. The chances of there being any archeology span here that's intact for sure is zero. That anything of value that hasn't been already identified after you know a hundred years of cultivation.
0: So that approach then would prioritize the archaeology right it would prioritize exactly. the archaeological material so would that prioritizing be at the sake of other things and what would those things be like in terms of the food chain if archaeology is at the top <laughs> what is it eating?
1: The idea is the the focus of the energy that the limited resources we always do seem to have on the more important things, on the things that are potentially significant.
0: As agreed upon Yeah, by, by the framework that would be developed. So how yeah. then, if, if there was a legislative approach like that, that had a framework that prioritized archaeology, but still had space for mm-hmm. regional beliefs, values, yeah. how would that process come together? Would those beliefs and regional, local beliefs, values be already kind of woven into the framework regionally? Or would it happen on the back end in like a consultative way? Understanding we're not mm-hmm. rewriting federal legislation or anything right now. You and I are spitballing.
1: No, I mean, one of the one of the approaches uh, used in Saskatchewan was a regional council of elders for managing sacred sites. Across the entire province,
0: already already in place, like established, yeah. established not reactively but proactively.
1: Yeah, already established. The province they set land aside um, in perpetuity for uh, a central burial ground for ancestral remains that couldn't be re, uh, reinterred um, where they were discovered. And several times a year, they they hold ceremonies. And depending on which region of the province those those remains came from folks would attend. It just meant that at the branch level, we didn't have to deal with those questions every day. Right. We found human remains. It wasn't a panic. We followed a process and a protocol. Having that kind of a regional scope, maybe in smaller regions in BC, of course, you've got overlapping interests of numerous groups in the lower mainland. But if you establish some kind of a committee, council, whatever, that had uh, everyone's input and developed processes for, for managing different types of sites that in conjunction with outlining sites that you just don't want to go to. Just stay away
0: from those things. So that example that you have in Saskatchewan mm-hmm. was this group, I think you said of elders, um, yep. were they paid? Were they paid by the province?
1: Oh, they were compensated for the time, yeah.
0: See, that's something that we're constantly missing. We're still asking people in BC to do important work
1: for for free
0: for free or <laughs> next to free, yeah, which i I'm, I don't work for free. Why should other people work for free? Like no. I, I don't give my expertise for free. Why would other people give their expertise for free or be asked to? Is that something like here in BC that that other you know other experts, other practitioners are being paid by the province to provide this expertise?
1: I think it sort of depends on the project and the situation. Mm. Certain projects, people get compensated in, and the size of the projects makes a difference for sure. You know, multi-billion-dollar projects—they don't—they're uh, they're not as shy about spending money on on culture and heritage and and uh, things like that. Um, but when you're, you know, when you're dealing with you know individual homeowners, it's a little harder to say, well, we need to we need to pay these people to be here. That being said. There's always kind of a cost of doing business. And, and that was always my approach when I was at the art branch was, I, I understand you've got budgetary issues and concerns and constraints, but, you know, we all do. And do we have to give up heritage for the price of a, a new sunroom on the back of your house? What's the balance there? I feel like there's an opportunity maybe to develop some kind of a, some kind of a fund that would accrue money, that would help people in, in small development situations. But, you know, when, when somebody comes to me complain about their, uh, the cost of archaeology because it's going you know, it to impact on the glass elevator they're putting in their house.
0: <laughs> and, and just, <laughs> a, just so I'm listeners real, know, this is not a metaphor. This is a real story. This is a is real story.
1: I guess I, I have a hard time being sympathetic. Uh, I mean, one of the, one of the things about the, the BC Heritage Conservation Act is they make it clear is that, that if you're going to be the beneficiary of the development, then you should pay the cost. A lot of people complain about why am I paying for this? Why should I pay for this? It's like, well, nobody else is going to reap the benefit of your glass elevator. Why shouldn't you pay the cost?
0: I mean, we've gotten a lot of traction out of that story. Like it's it's paying us in dividends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a great story,
0: right? And I heard it from you. It's not my yeah. story. And and I have told it <laughs> as though it were. <laughs> so so when we're when we're talking about this then, we're spitballing ideas related to updating. Potentially um, heritage management from like a high level approach, and interestingly, as we're talking about this, the Heritage Conservation Act Transformation Project, the HCATP, yep. is ongoing. began in two thousand and seven and is getting off the ground. It's soliciting. It's in the. I mean, it's been ongoing. I don't know the back end of it, but I do know that. When I learned about it, uh, it was soliciting consultants and other practitioners to have their input on what would be changed in the Heritage Conservation Act. So like the stuff that we're talking about today, do you think a framework like that with regional input would be possible or feasible? Is there an appetite for it, like legislatively?
1: Under the current government, there is a strong appetite for fulfilling the the impetus of UNDRIP. Right. Um, United Nations a, as, Declaration yeah.
0: on the Rights of Indigenous People.
1: Yeah. I mean, as opposed to just paying uh, lip service to it and, you know, signing a bunch of documents and throwing the word on it, you know, they, they have actually put our money where their mouth is.
0: They've got a uh, lot of my money.
1: <laughs> they've got a lot of everybody's money. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I like to see that my money's being spent on something that's got great value. And I, I think ignoring our heritage ignoring the past you do it your own peril right and there's always things to be learned from people from other cultures from each other i was uh, reviewing a a project in oliver building a new uh, walking trail along the river and i was reading a site that was you know right by the river right on the river bend and then i look at the map of oliver well there's no bends in the river anymore they've channelized the whole thing it just Mm -hmm. goes like this (laughs) this <laughs> there's no loops on it anymore or anything um so it took me a little while to figure out where the site was but it turns out the site now is the, the, the big loop in the river then in the river is where there's a baseball diamond now, mm. and that's cool you know in the site there's lots of stuff indicating it had been a village site for some time there have been some burials found there too but the coolest thing was on the back of the site form the last page there's a comment that the guy that recorded the site had spoken to the local First Nations. Uh, the chief had told him that when he was a, a, a little boy, his grandfather had told him that the site had been occupied by some neighbors to the south for a while, who came for and stayed for a little while and then left. We know who was there.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah. they pressed their hand into the concrete and wrote,
1: yeah, I we were,
0: was here. I
1: was here. And so it was occupied in living memory, <laughs> I guess not living anymore but at the time it was been occupied in living memory and and they were very clear about it wasn't them it was some of their neighbors that came up from the south probably to escape various types of persecution on the american side that piece of information tells me more about that site than than
0: dropping a bunch of shovel tests ever would
1: oh exactly exactly yeah and
0: and just for reference oliver is basically right on the Um, U.S.-Canadian border Yeah Yeah. Very, very, very close In southern BC It's
1: all very much fun (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure it all out
0: So, (laughs) I don't know, I mean I've been been doing this a long time You've been doing this a long time We're not spring chickens And I've always felt very optimistic I I feel a level of frustration Mm -hmm. That I haven't felt Um, And I've been frustrated for a (laughs) while time but I'm still very frustrated that being said I do feel really optimistic I used to feel like there were only a few people talking about how change would be possible and I do absolutely feel like the needle has flipped where the majority of people um practitioners the public uh lawmakers are talking about how things have to change where where do you Mm -hmm. kind of sit on that are you are you just old and crusty the way I am some days
1: Well, I certainly have my moments too. I guess I've always been kind of optimistic about it. Uh, maybe that's just my personality. But I've always seen things as as having the potential to change, to be better, to rearrange and not have to rely on, uh, on our children to do things for us. I, mm-hmm. And I say that because one project I had that had massive impact on a site was actually changed by the engineer's daughter. We saw a report on the news about the archeology span and she said, that's really cool dad. And he said, well, that's actually my highways project that I'm building. And he said, she said, can we go see it? And so the next day he took her you know, to, go to work day. The next week I had a meeting with the guy and he's like, well, we decided to revise our plans so we can avoid the site. I'd, I'd been working on them for weeks. <laughs> so there's a way we can shift any part of this right away to lessen the impact on the site. And they moved it like 30, 40 meters. They completely avoided the site. And it can be up, done. And they ended up putting the site, it ended up being in the median between the two lanes of the highway. So that's never going to be developed. Hmm. It's, it's not enough space and it's in the middle of nowhere, like I mean relative to 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 populated areas. Nobody's ever going to develop there.
0: See what happens when you get women in the workplace? Positive change. Exactly. I'm pretty optimistic too. I often think as well, like as I become an elder archaeologist, I don't know if I'm actually an Mm. elder archaeologist, but you know, getting there, that at some point there's gonna be a line at some Mm. point where I am not going to be in alignment with young people. It's just I'm (laughs) gonna be too far removed. And I'm 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 trying to be very aware of where that line is. Because then I think my only duty is to step aside.
1: Yeah, I, I reached that point uh, a couple years ago um, when I was listening to, uh, it might have been one of the things that you guys organized, one of the lunchtime webinars and uh, some of the comments afterwards. Um, and I, I don't know who it was in particular, but basically started on a rant about how old people in the field had ruined everything. And... <laughs> The reason it's all screwed up today is because of us. And there's some truth in that. But at the same time, don't really understand at that age that the people around you have been fighting for this change for years. And part of the issue is the glacial movement of governments. I always kind of think of it as like the uh, glacial Prince George. Glacial Prince George was this massive thing. One day, there was an ice jam at the south end that maintained the lake it flowed north. So while Glacial Lake, Prince George was there, the Fraser River flowed north. And one day, the ice broke, the ice melted, and it broke, the dam broke, and then Glacial Prince George changed direction and started flowing south to the lower mainland, which must have been such a cataclysmic thing. If you were living on the shores of like Prince George, and you got up in the morning, and there was no lake anymore.
0: <laughs> Is this an anecdote for how the HCA will suddenly change its glacial? Glacial. It's, a, it's an anecdote glacial. for
1: how that's how government works.
0: And then it'll flip.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how government works. You work at it, and you work at it, and, and you introduce changes, and those changes get ratified and verified and, and beaten around. And um, until the final wording is all put into legal deeds by lawyers, people that are specialists in writing legislation, so that the legislation is saying what is meant as little gray area as possible. What is the intent of the legislation? Does it say what it intends to do? And and they do all that stuff. And then at the end of all that, then it goes to the legislature, and they bat it around maybe a couple of times. However, many readings. And once it's had the minimum number of readings, uh, if everyone agrees, then that's the new legislation. They vote on it and yay, it's done. Oh, no, no, it's not done. (laughs) Then it has to go through a whole other process after it passes in the House before it actually gets enacted. And the regulations have to be written. So while you might pass a change in the House, it might take a year or, two or more, or more, yeah. to actually get it up and running under mm. its new under its new design, right?
0: And then someone else gets voted in process. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, once it's passed, then that whole process takes off, right? Right. But that but it does take a while, you know. the last yeah. changes that were that were undertaken, um, we all went down. All the people from the branch, we all went down to watch the vote.
0: I remember. It was that. Very, very exciting. Good. Absolutely. It's
1: like, yay, awesome, it's great. And then I got back I, to the office and the policy people's like, oh, yeah, no. No, no, we're not. It doesn't change tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it's got this whole other process to go through. So it might take years and years. And like you say, they've been working on legislative change since like 2007. So it might seem like it's taking forever to get this thing done. Once that process is done, then it does flip overnight.
0: I think I think that that is like an important message to remind career consultants like myself who haven't worked in government and who don't have that insight in terms of the change. It doesn't mean that we have to be okay with it or comfortable no. or just kind of roll over. I, I, like that, that's not the messaging, but I think it's important. You do have that unique scope that you can kind of have that understanding on the CRM side. The flip side of that is, Uh, you also have understanding on the government side. So if you you say to CRM archaeologists like myself, like this is the process, it takes some time, but, you know, the gears are moving, Mm -hmm. what would be the message that you would give to the government? Because you're in that unique position of having insight to both.
1: You know, just do whatever Jenny says.
0: Yeah, thank you, (laughs) Gary. Yeah, thank you. That's exactly right.
1: And get it done tomorrow. I know the people that that are, are working on this, quite well and i know that they're doing everything they can right and everything that's allowable under the law and within budgets we're rooting for you a lot of people is like there's sort of this fight between government and consultants and blah, blah, blah. but in the end of the day you know, like we're all rooting for you because the changes can only help everybody
0: and we all win right
1: that's that's the that's the whole and point. we
0: don't win if we fuck it up again on this redo like that's that's not the goal <laughs>
1: I don't know. Is there anything we could do to the act the way it's currently written and make it worse? I don't know. I don't I know. Mean, no, I, don't, I shouldn't say I that. Don't, I I mean, go there, back there, to
0: only taking faxes? I mean, that oh, would be a step. No, Wait, I too mean, soon?
1: No, too soon. There are strong aspects to it. There are some that are kind of silly.
0: I think silly is a very diplomatic word, Carrie. It's probably a good place to end when you said they should just do what Jenny says. So we're going to end okay. it there. Uh, Gary, I'm so glad that you're part of our team. It's yeah. amazing. It's something I'm very proud of in my career the team that we have and that we have uh, people like you on it. So thank you very much oh, for joining well, us. Thank
1: you. Thank you for starting this team.
0: Hey, okay. so it's really the least I can do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And we'll continue this discussion because we'll need to report on how this HCATP is unfolding and and kind of just process what's going on. That'll be really exciting to see. It's an exciting time to be in archaeology.
1: Yeah, it it really is. There's an impetus for change and that's always cool.
0: Always cool, for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.